Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you. Today, we get to hear from my friend, Jeremy Courtney, our first ever return guest in The New Activist. It's a big deal for me. I don't know if anybody else cares, but I was excited. Jeremy is the founder and president of Preemptive Love Coalition, an international relief organization engaging on the front lines of the world's most polarizing conflicts in Iraq and Syria. Jeremy is also a sought-after speaker and author. I have said this many times on many different podcasts, but his 2014 book uh, called Preemptive Love was formational for me, and it was groundbreaking for me, and I would really encourage you to go and read that book cover to cover. We are here today with Jeremy live at Liberate here in Frisco, Texas with a live audience. Hello, live audience. This is really, really fun. And we are grateful that you are here. Friends, would you join me in warmly welcoming Jeremy Courtney. Yes. The man, Jeremy, how are you? I like being here with you. You doing okay? Is your mic working? I'm so well, thank you. Is the music still going? No, it has stopped. I am really grateful that you are here. How was the trip back to the U.S.? It's good. Thanks I know for this isn't me. like home, though. We talked about this last night. People say, like, how's it feel coming home? This isn't home. I'm going home on Monday, back to Iraq, where I live. That's right. So, would you please, for us, um, for those that did not hear our episode, which, by the way, we recorded almost exactly two years ago to the day, which, again, this may be one of those facts that I only get excited about, but I get, like, all... Like, and it was one of the early ones for you. Oh, it was the, the first... It was the first interview. The day the show launched, I called you, because of the time change, we... The day launched, we had this, like, big launch, and it was all exciting, and I got to interview you, and it was, like, 8 o'clock. I was at IJM headquarters, and we had this... Well, congratulations on two years. Oh, okay, that's sweet of you. Okay. Okay, that's <laughs> Jeremy. Okay, you know I'm uncomfortable. So okay. what has it been like for two years? No, 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 no. I will be on your podcast. So tell me, um, can you give us sort of the elevator pitch in case we didn't hear the first episode? What is preemptive love? Well, we consider ourselves a community of peacemakers, first and foremost, um, trying to be on the front lines of conflict, which includes America but it also includes places like Iraq and Syria and trying to press into places like Somalia and North Korea. And, and the way we're trying to do it is we're trying to be first in to some of these places, like when the bombs are still falling, when, when snipers are still sniping. We're trying to drive past everyone else who stopped somewhere out here on the sidelines and said, this is far enough. We'll just wait here for the people to reach us. We're saying, bless you. This work is needed. This ground is holy. Serve here. We're going to try and go further into the conflict and see if we can get to those who are still stuck, those who can't leave, those who still need help, those who are like literally in the combat zone itself. So we're trying to go first in, fast in, deep into conflict. And then we're trying to stay and make lasting impact. We're, we're committing ourselves to be last to leave, so to speak, in some of these places, that, that we don't just drop off aid, we don't just give someone the medicine they need in a moment, but, but that we stick around to do the institutional work, the systemic work, the long-term, partnered together, helping people stand back up on their own two feet work. Yeah, and, and for those that don't know, like you, you live there, that is your home, right? What, can you remind us of that decision of why there, instead of running an, organiza an international organization from maybe your home in the states where you were at before? Because mm. they're both valid models. I mean, IJM works by having field offices around the world, and then there's partner offices. So there's different ways of doing this. What's the decision for you as the person in charge of the whole org, a very like, growing organization, to be there? Well, it's probably important to say that this wasn't some big grand plan. Right. Um, 
I was inspired by IJM, I was inspired by Gary, I was inspired by what you have made possible tw starting 20 years ago. But um, the real catalytic moment for us came in Waco, Texas, September 11, 2001, when we woke up and found out that something very strange was happening in the country and it unfolded throughout the next couple of hours that these horrific terror attacks were taking place. And that was a very catalytic moment for me. My recollection of it now is that the country just kind of polarized and a lot of our community, it seemed like, in, in Waco, seemed to like stand at this fork in the road and take the path that led toward the vilification of Muslims. It took the path that, that wrapped the cross in the flag and said, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Get them before they get us. Shoot first, ask questions later. And that just really sat wrongly with us. Um, we were trying to swim upstream against that a little bit as best we knew how at that time. And so we raised our hand and said, we want to get in the mix of this conversation, but we don't really want to go that route. We're going to go this route over here. Here we are, Lord, send us. We ended up moving into the region, um, started getting to know Muslims, started living in Muslim neighborhoods, moving around, drinking tea at the same, you know, sweet shop every day run by Muslims for years. And I would go into these places, and I, my, my mind and my worldview and my life and my theology were formed such that my main reason for being there, and this is not talking about anyone else. This is, this is me talking very personally about myself. My main reason for being there was to ultimately prove that I was right. Interesting. I mean, really, what it boils down to is I, I would sit in the sweet shop and I would figure out how to insinuate myself into other people's lives, other people's conversations. I would sit awkwardly, faking like I was reading the newspaper, trying to overhear some word that my Turkish friends were saying, and then jump into their conversation so that hopefully within one or two chess moves, I could checkmate them on Jesus. And I was taught how to do this. I was schooled in how to do this. It was just like a, you know, like growing up in the church? An apologetics sort of approach to all of life that said, with the right series of arguments, you can ultimately win. And over the course of doing that, I, I would meet these amazing guys. I would, uh, we would become friends, and they would offer up whatever hospitality and welcome and kindness that they, they were ready to extend to me as a visitor, as a guest. And I seemed to know how to take every open-armed, open-handed gesture of welcome and turn it into a fight. Mm. It was, um, oh, you're American. Welcome. We're the same. We love you. Welcome. Have some tea. And, like, I would not want to be identified with America. So I'd get my fists up and I'd start a fight over what, what my citizenship is. Well, really, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Let's, oh, let's yeah. debate yeah. about that. You know? Yeah, that's right. And I was, I was just, <laughs> I was an expert at turning every gesture of hospitality into an argument that was ultimately aimed to getting to Jesus, ostensibly. And after doing this for years, I just, long story short, I woke up one day and realized I'm the same thing I said that I didn't want to be. Like I had friends who overtly draped themselves in the flag and went out and they said very clearly that they wanted to destroy Muslims. 
And I was so appalled by that. And I draped myself in the Bible, and I went out to destroy Muslims. My whole thing was still about obliterating Islam, just like their thing over here was totally about obliterating Islam. <sighs> and like, like, when's the moment that you realize that? Because that's like, that's like a, that's a heavy thing to realize about yourself. Was there like a singular moment where you're like, oh, I am, oh no, this is, I am coming under the guise of something totally different. I am doing the same thing. Or was it a, a progression? I don't know when I would have learned to put it in those terms. That probably wasn't until I moved to Iraq, but right. I will tell you the singular moment that I, I can think was most defining. I was, I was at this church planting conference, face down on the ground, crying out to God. We'd been going through these seminars and I'd been listening to testimony from all over the world about people who, through their lives and their work and their ministry and their testimonies, were seeing people come to Jesus, convert, leave Islam, join the church. They would have put it various different ways, but right. some, some combination of those things. Right. And I wasn't seeing that. We weren't seeing that in our work, in our community. We weren't seeing that in our country even. There was no one in our country who was even seeing such a thing like that. And I remember just being face down on the ground in this conference room, kind of place where we were, crying out to God in the back of the room while other things were going on around me, screaming out, where are you, God? Why are you doing this to that guy? And, and that woman? Like, she can't even speak her language the way that I am so good at speaking this language. And why are you working through these people? And in a, in a moment, there was this, like in my mind's eye, I saw myself crying out to God, screaming, why me? Where are you? Why me? Sir. And I, I think this word came to me that I would rarely ever say I've had like a word, but I think a word, I think I heard a response and it was because you don't love them, Jeremy. That's why I'm not doing anything through you. You love being right. You love your blog. You love your newsletters that you send out. You love trying to position yourself as some kind of persecuted Paul. But you don't love Muhammad sitting across the table from you full stop. That is vicious. That is, a hard, that is a hard moment to realize. And so what do you do when you get up? I, I, I saw myself in that argumentative fists up posture. And when that word came, you don't love them, I saw my fists come down and my arms open wide. And I was still face down on the ground. And when I stood up, I was completely and utterly changed in a moment. It wasn't a process, it was some, some long, lifelong sanctification. In this particular instance, that word came and transformed me. And I stood up a completely different person. We moved to Iraq six weeks later, and a new, a new era started for us. When we spoke last time, kind of where we left preemptive love, I think the general population knew you all as the organization that does heart surgery for kids in Iraq. Like that was like generally like that was the first iteration of it. Um, but I, I know at the time and since then there has been kind of an expanding of the, the mission and what preempt, preemptive love practically does on the ground. Can you kind of tell us one, why and how did you broaden it? And two, what, what are you, what's the scope of the work today? We broadened it because we didn't, um, two reasons. One, our mission has always been our message, namely this idea of preemptive love itself. Our mission isn't to alleviate poverty. Our, our mission isn't to provide water for everyone in the world. Our mission is to foster and promote, embody, live out this very idea of preemptive love. When we landed in Iraq, 
it did not take but a minute until we started finding military people and militia leaders and certainly terrorists who were in the sphere who were living from this posture of get you before you get me. We literally sat with military people who said, shoot first, ask questions later. That's what we do. Kill them all. Let God sort them out. That's our mantra. Whatever you do, it's better to be judged by 12 than make sure that you don't end up carried by six. Came home after one of those conversations and talked to Jessica and said, is this the best we've got? Like, this, isn't, this doesn't fit right with me. The NGOs, the, the government leaders, the military certainly, the embassy people, they were all just, shat, they were up-armored in all their bulletproof vests and their up-armored cars and the helmets and everything was about self-protection, which meant that places like Fallujah were largely off-limits, places like Mosul were largely off-limits. And we just said, this does not, that's not what we came here to do. We came here to follow Jesus. And so it seems like we have to flip this whole script on its head. What if we dared to be a people who would love first and ask questions later? What if we could be a people who loved them all and let God sort it out? What if there was something bigger and better in this world than just trying not to end up in a coffin carried to our graves by six? And um, the idea of preemptive love, the mission, the vision, it all was born out of that. Mm. And so the first thing that we put our hands to was this one little girl who needed heart surgery. But right. the, the, the mission was always about promoting this vision for the world, mm. this more beautiful world that That's right. I think together our hearts know is possible, but we just mm. don't always know how to get there. We're convinced it comes through this, this life of giving ourselves away. Yeah. I uh, want to be aware, I think that Maybe there was a time when we heard more on the news about Iraq and Syria, but I feel like as of late, the news cycle is dominated by uh, other news stories. And so this is a broad question, and I know it, but I also I, I would appreciate the education. Like, what is, what is kind of the State of the Union right now of Iraq and same question for Syria? Like, what do you see? What is life like there? Can you chat a bit about it? Yeah, it's complex. Yeah. Um, so I'll go back and say that that one of the reasons we pivoted and broadened the scope of our work is because this was never about creating an organization. This is always about our friends. <laughs> These are our friends. These are our neighbors. And our neighbors found themselves afflicted by these combination of things that happened in war that was causing a rise in birth defects. And then our friends found themselves being marauded and overrun by this terrorist organization that took control of a third of Syria and a third of Iraq, and our neighbors needed a different kind of help. So we pivoted to help our neighbors. Um, today, through, through the complex things that have happened, both in the Syrian civil war and in the ISIS situation um, on the Iraqi side, we, we arguably find ourselves together with our neighbors in a much better place. Hmm. Um, many of the overt acts of violence are not what you were seeing on the news four years ago and three years ago. And on the other hand, um, one of the reasons that it's out of the news is because it's all just kind of the boring aftermath of overt conflict now. Uh, bombs look great on the evening news. And, and people barreling down the highway with black flags and masks over their face look great on the evening news. Right. But once we all together bomb the hell out of these cities and leave them in complete rubble, what are you going to do? You're just going to keep showing up and filming the rubble? There's not 
anything salacious enough to keep showing on the news, but believe me, the conflict is still going, and the effects of the conflict are still going, and the next conflict is gestating right now. The next conflict is in utero. Do you know about that conflict, or do you just know that as a theory that it's happening? Oh, we, we certainly know it beyond theory. Can you talk about it at all, or is that not uh, a wise decision? It, they're too numerous to talk about. I see. Yeah, I mean, look, there, I, I am not the kind of pacifist that has absolutely zero place in my experience and my worldview for force. It's complicated, and I've seen my life and the lives of others protected by force, and I've seen them completely destroyed and obliterated by force. Um, but we cannot bomb our way to peace. And, and so the fundamentals of these conflicts, they, they're not being addressed. Mm. I mean, we'll drop billions and billions and billions of dollars in bombs and bullets in the name of peace, ostensibly. But the deeper work, it's not that it's been tried and failed. It hasn't even been tried. The deeper work of peace is, is barely being tried on the scale of what war is, is proven to do. So the fundamental stuff living beneath the surface, it's, you, you can drive terrorists and ideologies and political parties and white supremacist groups. You can drive all that stuff underground. That's, it's not that hard to do. But to actually address the deeper issues that, they, that, that gave rise to them in the first place, someone has to actually enter the fray, take off the armor, walk across enemy lines, and, and put our lives vulnerably on the line face-to-face -face on behalf of the vulnerable and the suffering. That means white people need to stand up and go to white supremacists so that black and brown and Jewish people aren't left alone on the front lines of those conflicts. And that means men have to stand up and walk to the front on behalf of women who have been taking the blows for far too long. And it means Christians need to step into the middle of some things. And it means Muslims need to step into the middle of some things. But, but the peace, the flourishing, the more beautiful world that I think we all are aiming for here, it's it's not going to come about through force. It's only going to come about through vulnerability. So, so in doing just cursory prep for this, I'm like scanning through the Preemptive Love website, clicking around, seeing if things have changed. And uh, under our work, I thought, yeah, I'll check that out. Uh, and there was a fairly shocking graphic because it says, where do we work? And you know where I'm going. It says, you see Syria. And you see a little outline of the map, and you see uh, Iraq, you see a little outline of the map, and then there is the United States. And it is not often that a organization of your nature, right? I was surprised that you so clearly claim the United States as part of the work that you're doing. That is new since we spoke two years ago. Maybe it's, maybe it's new in saying it out loud. Maybe it's not new in the hearts of, of you and the org, but what, do you, what work are you doing in the United States and why? We started to get some, I mean, after eight years of hard slog quietly, doing our best to just serve in Iraq primarily, we started getting altitude in the press um, kind of once the ISIS thing really hit. And so I'd do a round of news with CNN or Fox or whatever, and we'd get a bump, and that, that bump would kind of take us to a new floor. And then another thing would happen, and we'd get a bump, and that would kind of become our new floor. And we just, it was like climbing stairs a little bit. 
And somewhere along the way, I, I don't know, things just felt like they had reached a, a critical mass, whatever that means, whatever that is, where there were enough people giving us money, sending it via credit card, via the airways, via mail, so that we could help those people over there. But it became increasingly painfully obvious that, that we were like somehow filling some kind of weird proxy role for them for that which they weren't willing to also do and engage here where they live. And they were cheering us on, and this idea of preemptive love is beautiful and amazing, and we literally went in to like help ISIS members themselves, not ISIS victims, the victimizers. Right. We fed ISIS in captivity because they were being mistreated by the police, and we believe in human dignity and human rights. And so we fed ISIS and people cheered us on. Amazing, loving your enemies. But it, it didn't seem to be reflected in lives and churches and communities here at home. The same philosophy, the same idea wasn't right. being equally applied here at home. Hmm. And, and the more we got news play and we would send out our own videos and there were like bombs going off in the background and we were dodging shrapnel, it became apparent like we were somehow feeding into this narrative that what conflict is is really about bombs and bullets. And people were all too happy to, to disregard the conflict in their own lives and the, the conflict in their own streets and turn away from the Baltimores and the Fergusons and the whatever else is, the Flints, and, and, and make it all about the, the big stuff over there. Those people are the kind of people who have conflict. Right. Those people are the kind of people who don't, they're ungovernable. We are a society of order and justice and law and That's decency. Right. right. We are ignoring the plank in our own eye. And so we just, we realized we're actually complicit in this. And we are going to have to help change the conversation. We're going to have to work to say, look, this was never supposed to be about bombs and bullets. These wars, they, they start in our hearts long before they ever reach our hands. And there's something brewing here today, and it's been brewing for some time, like maybe since the beginning. And... And we have to regard this as the front line of conflict as well. And so join us. So let's do this together. Let's keep living this out on the front lines where we live. We. Not send us your money over here for these salacious front lines because actually Muslims are so fundamentally different than we are. No, but we together, we have to care about the front lines where we live. There is clearly injustice all around the world, but... but sometimes the solution to make things more just can look differently. So feeding someone who is a member of ISIS and caring for what could be considered, right, your enemy or what would be popularly considered your enemy, how does it look to actually pursue that justice in the United States? Like practically, what has preemptive love found? That, that, what does your work look like here? Well, when it, we were... I think Charlottesville was the big moment for us. Yeah, we right. were, we would have considered ourselves in it before that. We, we had turned that corner, but for, as for many of us, Charlottesville was just such a heartbreaking, devastating, duh yeah. kind of moment, depending yeah. on where you sat in the room. Um, 
that for Jessica and I in particular, yeah. um, our most natural response, our default, our knee-jerk reaction was, all right, team, we're comprised of a whole lot of white people. So it's time to get up and walk toward the white supremacists and listen. Not shout them down, mm. not yell at them, not get in their face and finger wag. Is that what we do to ISIS? Is that what we do to fundamentalists? Is that what we do over here on the front lines where we've been living in Iraq? No, that's not what we do. That's not who we are. Get up, go form the relationships. U.S. team, you who live on this front line, get up and go, just like you've been helping support our get up and go. And suddenly it's like the wheels came off the bus in our own organization. Whoa, 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 whoa. And no one had to say it out loud, but fundamentally what was at issue was to sit here in this country, America, and say, we ought not bomb those people. Muslims yeah. are not inherently evil. Refugees are not inherently evil. We should welcome, we should walk toward our enemies. That's a, that's a sort of liberal-leaning idea. To say, I am going to walk toward the white supremacists and not engage them like so much of culture is engaging right now. Oh my gosh. That's an, ex that's an excruciatingly difficult thing if you want to seem liberal and woke. Well, what if they think ill of me? I mean, my black friends or my white friends. What if I get caught on camera smiling talking at a protest with white supremacists. And, and from the Iraq-Syria side of our house, we're saying, yeah. You think that's not what we've been doing all these years? You think we're not called names where we live in Iraq? You think we're not sympathizers? You think we're not accused of all the things that come reputationally with moving towards your enemy? What did you think we were doing? This is our work. This is who we are. We don't send victims to go out and have to face their, their victimizers, their, their assaulters, their terrorizers. No, those of us who are somehow from that group, we need to stand up and we need to go and we need to put our bodies in between the violence and the victim. I think we can see in Charlottesville where the violence is coming from right now. So we need to stand up and put our bodies in between the violence and the victim. But we need to do it in a way that metabolizes the violence and seeks to transform it, not shame it, not reject it, not isolate it, not drive it back underground. That's not what we do. That's not who we are. So don't cheer on the liberal acts of preemptive love, how they appear through your worldview over on this side of the world, but reject the seemingly illiberal acts of preemptive love because mm. you might get branded over here on this side. And I don't know what your question was, but yeah, that was... You, answer, you answered that and many other wonderful questions. That was a big moment for us. Yeah, that, that's right. That it was like, this is hard Yeah, when it's, when it's real. Can we, can we talk about the church for a little bit? Oh, I thought we were. Uh, well, yeah, I guess we are. Can we continue to talk about the church for a little bit? Specifically the church in the U.S. I'm, I'm curious how 
the church hears um, and responds to the the work of preemptive love. Like, and I'm not talking about the opposite ends of the bell curve, like people that are uh, just just like overly accepting and no matter what you do, you're always going to have a place in the fall. We're talking about like the middle of the bell curve, mm. the church in America. Do you feel like when you are bringing this idea that is basically, I mean, if I can like recap it in a way that is not as eloquent as you, like loving your enemy in a very radical way, like just a completely different kind of love, love anyway, as the sweatshirts say, right? Like how do you feel like they hear that? Is that like a generally accepted idea or is there pushback? Tell me. It's also a broad question. I'm asking you to summarize an entire country's worth of church. So <laughs> feel free to parse it or reject it. it it's an incredibly, it is, it is one of Jesus's, it is Jesus's perhaps most challenging life-altering vision for the world. The only other one that I'm thinking of that could come close is the idea of dying to self. And obviously they're very intimately tied up and bound around one another. So, I mean, it's not lost on me that this is hard. Mm -hmm. I guess what's lost on me is the degree to which we just pay flippant lip service to it and don't even try. It's hard. It's scary. And we very well might lose our lives in the process. We, on the front lines where we live. So I, I don't harbor any ill will to someone who finds it hard. Right. How do you not, though? I mean, because oh, we I, do. Please, yeah, we yeah. do. Because, like, I work, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm part of IJM, and my job with IJM is to share with the church about the work of ending slavery. And it's like, it, it overwhelms me sometimes when you get just a patent rejection of, like, nah, we're just not going to really talk about that in the church. And, like, just as an idea, it's not like they won't let IJM in, but just generally this idea of ending slavery is just not going to be a part of our congregation's portfolio of justice. And it, like, um, crushes my soul <laughs> sometimes, and then sometimes it's like, uh, okay, so I'm actually asking you a question that I need help processing because I'm just, like, I would imagine that there is both an acceptance and a rejection, and I'm wondering how you process that. An acceptance and a rejection of loving your enemy. I mean, like any relationship, like, like any milling through the crowd and meeting people, you have those meetings and those encounters and the churches who take up the challenge, and it is like the biggest win in the world. Like, are you kidding me? Another church like truly wants to try and go one step closer into this conversation? Wow, what a job, what a life, what a privilege. And then there's others who for now, at this moment, at this snapshot of where they are, say not for me, say not now, or say mean things. And that hurts and it's frustrating. But I wasn't always on this path. That's a good point, Jeremy. I, I had my transformative moment. That's a good point. And so I want to hold space. I want to. I want to not condemn. I, I don't. There's no use burning bridges. There's no use. Being prophetic is not about being condemning. Being prophetic ought not tear down. Being prophetic ought to build up. I mean. It ought not tear down people. It ought not tear down relationships. It might need to be a part of tearing down structures. But 
I just, I, I just know the journey I've been on. Hmm. I know what I set out into this world to do. I, really? I know that that first, when I got on my first plane, I was about destroying Islam and destroying Muslims. And to pretend otherwise would be duplicitous for me. And so wherever I've ended up, at, or whatever snapshot this is of who I am, I got here because of a church who inspired me to raise my hand and go. I got here because of a church who said there is a vision for the world, even if that vision was actually very much about destroying Islam, that somehow in the grand economy and grace of God, even that has been a stair step to, to this thing that we're, we find ourselves doing now. And, and so I want to allow that anything can be a stair step to that, that next transformative moment in my life, your life, or a specific church's life. It's an incredible perspective, and I, I appreciate that. Um, I want to pivot uh, pretty drastically now, uh, but because I'm also aware that in the last two years, preemptive love has grown a lot. Um, I mean, you had a handful of staff and a budget over a little over a million two years ago. Oh, we're going details now. I mean, we are going. I mean, I can pull up your financials. I learned how to use the internet. Um, and like now, you are like, at this point, you are well out of like any definition of like startup nonprofit, right? Like it is like four plus million dollar budget, maybe more, a lot of staff. I would imagine that your role has specifically changed. One, is that true? And two, what has it been like to lead an organization that is growing very fast. Um, it's, it's been very difficult. So just for the sake of context, uh, last year we closed at $12 million. Oh, I didn't use the internet then that Which, well. Which, I don't know if we've, we, 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 <laughs> Sorry. May, we may not have filed that publicly. I yet, also, I no, there was also like but a big reason, spreadsheet that I was looking at and I didn't fully understand but it. But the reason so. I say it is, <laughs> the, the only reason I say that twofold. One, we'll be down this year, so these things come in cycles and seasons, and so it's nothing to define yourself by. That's one thing. Right. Um, but it, yeah, it's been fast. It's been hard. It, to scale, uh, making widgets is one thing. To scale love and first do no harm in places of extreme violence and polarization, that's a whole nother matter. And um, I guess in part, the, the one of the challenges of leading through this particular season has been just to continue to have the courage of our convictions and say, look, seasons come and go, donors come and go, we are going to do what's right. Did a lot of money come in suddenly? because we raised our head above the parapet and said we know how to do this particular thing? Yeah, it did. Do we know how to spend all that money tomorrow in the way that maybe the UN could? Do we even want to spend it the way the UN would? Hmm. No. Right. And so might we end a filing year and have to show the donors that we still had a lot of cash on the books? Yeah. Might some people 18 months from now look back at that and go, wow, look how selfish they were. They stored up a lot of treasure for themselves here in, in the earth. Hmm. Okay, that's going to happen. The courage of our convictions is to say, look, we're not here to dump money into economies. We're not here believing that money is what actually solves these conflicts alone. We will get left holding the bag on some of these things when the year closes if we can't find 
the right way to love people in this particular environment. Because we're here for the long haul. When we say first in, last to leave, we're still going to be spending after everyone else goes home. Right. And so part of the challenge has been the, the criticisms and the, the, the chirpy questions and the genuine, well-thought-out, meaningful conversations about what, what rate we should be spending at and what does it mean to scale responsibly when human lives are at risk. And that risk goes both ways. They're at risk of starving. We have to spend more quickly. They're living out with no shelter over their head. We have to spend more quickly. That's a, that's a true conversation. And the other side that would say, hold up, we can't just dump money into this place. What if we really hurt the economy for the next 20 years? What if we drive people away even as we build these people up? And so that's having a, having a different level of, we're thinking at a different level. We're mm. learning to think at a different level. Jeremy, how would you define activist? It's a loaded word, and I didn't ask you the last time. I would try not to. I would, <laughs> I would try to dodge and That's pivot a, and avoid as much as possible. You can. You cannot answer So it. I'm not going to. No. I'll, <laughs> it's fine. I'll, I'll engage. Um, <laughs> clearly, it means different things to different people. Um, I'll just, I, I kind of, I got nervous when I heard you ask that question earlier today because <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to answer because I am on the record in other places saying, look, at the end of the day, you can be an activist or you can take action. Ooh, I like that though. And I don't know if that's true, but I said it. Um, yeah, it feels right though. It feels right. I know people and I have allowed myself to kind of maybe get define the word in a ghettoized way that maybe doesn't apply to how you define the word. But I, I, I don't want to ever scratch that. We found our way to where we are through action. We found the way to where we are through one scary step toward the thing that is most uncomfortable for us. One step at a time. Um, we found our way to where we are in a highly relational way. It started with one little girl that Jessica met when a taxi driver lovingly kidnapped her and took her to his home, led her inside and said, look at my little eight-year-old girl writhing on the floor with spina bifida. Ours started when I met one little girl in a hotel lobby who needed a life-saving heart surgery. And we have, I think, done a, a very, very good job of staying true to those relational roots. We are all about relationship. We're all about action. I march. I, I've held signs, but I don't think it has the power to change the world. And so I want to keep promoting Take one next scary step toward the thing you fear the most. And do it relationally. That was a good answer. Friends, Jeremy Courtney. Well, I am deeply grateful for Jeremy and his friendship and his encouragement to take one small step that will ring 
at Will Ring in my heart and mind. To keep up with all things Preemptive Love and Jeremy Courtney, head to preemptivelove.org. There are just it's an amazing like place for information. There's also a great store there. Their uh, sweatshirt, one of the most comfortable things in the entire world. So buy all of the Preemptive Love stuff and support this amazing organization. Also, Jeremy can be found on social. All of his links and everything will be in the podcast player. Of course, the conversation that we started here will continue on Facebook and Twitter. Both of those handles are New Activist Is, one word, and the website is newactivist.is. A special thanks to the Brilliance who scored today's episode. All of the info about the Brilliance is on thebrilliancemusic.com. And finally, a massive thank you to this wonderful, lovely, and kind crowd here in Frisco, Texas. Thank you. I do appreciate it. And to all the volunteers that helped make the new activists happen today. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Jeremy Courtney and my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you.